Well, good morning. If, if you were in class today in Sunday school, then you got a great primer on what Christians believe about the Bible. There was plenty of discussion about what's inside, the authority of Scripture, why Christians call it God's Word, all that. If you missed it, uh, you can get exactly what was studied out in the lobby if you get the Believe book. Uh, it's a great way to kind of keep up with what everyone else is doing in the church. And while those are vitally important truths for the Christian, if you talk about the inerrancy of the scriptures with those who don't confess any kind of Christianity or those who are only loosely affiliated, a lot of times their eyes just glaze over. A lot of people don't necessarily actively hate the Bible, but a lot of the ideas about inerrancy, being error-free, inspired, having authority over your belief, your life, your actions, it's not of any real significance. It's not of any real importance. It'd be like someone trying to explain to me the importance of the various ways paint is made and the different properties of paint. All that matters to me is that the paint I buy sticks to my walls, right? What's the bottom line here? What are we getting at? Why do we need to make statements at all about the Bible? And the questions that people are asking about the Bible in our postmodern, secular world aren't really anything new. People have always asked variations of these same questions. But we also know that there are questions behind the questions, right? There are questions that guide the questions we ask. Sometimes we mask the real question so we can ask it in a way that we're not really asking it. Or if we have an agenda, we want to make a point by asking loaded questions. And then we often just have very honest questions. We want to get at the heart of the matter. We're very sincere about our questions. We also need to make peace with the fact that we all carry a cultural bias. Culture informs the questions that we ask about the Bible. Why is that? Because culture and the Bible are fighting to form your identity. They're telling different stories about who you are. So there is an inherent conflict when you actively choose or passively choose to put one above the other. They're fighting for dominance in every one of our lives. Both the Bible and culture are trying to tell you and me who you are and who I am. They're trying to form an identity for you. And because that's the tension we all face all the time, today we're not going to talk about this is what the Bible is. We're going to talk about three common objections that people have about the Bible, or three common questions that people ask about the Bible. We'll also look at the questions that guide the questions we ask and what the assumptions or cultural bias might be behind the question we're asking. And these are honest questions. These are uh, questions that you'll read in textbooks. There are, there are questions you'll have at coffee shops with friends, over dinner with family. These are real questions, not something to just spin a yarn about the Bible or come up with some kind of confirmation bias with other Christians about how awesome the Bible is. These are honest questions we've all asked or have been asked in one way or another. So just to get started, first question, isn't the Bible, isn't it best just to spiritualize the Bible? Because it's full of contradictions and therefore it really can't be true by any modern standard. Isn't it best just to spiritualize the Bible away? Now this is probably the most common one, but it's also quite loaded, isn't it? Not only should we spiritualize the Bible, do away with any kind of literal understanding, 
but we should do so because it's cheap. What are we assuming when we ask the question, should we just spiritualize the Bible? We're assuming the Bible is full of errors, right? It's inherently untrustworthy. But it's human nature to try to spiritualize things to get out of any kind of accountability for what we now know. It's even a biblical idea. In the book of James, James writes, So whoever knows the right thing to do and then does not do it, to him it is sin. So we all know different things. We're all at different places in our spiritual maturity. But what we know, we're accountable for. So we like to spiritualize things, make them optionals. Pretty much we like to make them good advice. We turn the good news into good advice. And then we don't have to follow advice, right? Have you heard about these like fill-in-the-blank and philosophy books? Like Batman and philosophy is charmingly called the Dark Knight of the Soul. There's also uh, Starbucks and philosophy. And the one that kicked all this off was The Simpsons and philosophy. Bottom line is we just like to spiritualize things. We like to make things into good advice so we don't have to actually follow them. By spiritualizing the Bible, you're essentially dumbing down hundreds and hundreds of years of Holy Spirit-inspired revelation to a pop psychology book. But the Bible never claims to be a pop psychology book. The Bible claims to be Holy Spirit-inspired revelation. So if you're going to do that, fine, but admit what you're doing. See your ideas through to the logical conclusion. If the Bible is just supposed to be spiritualized and be more of a mystical guide in your life, then it's no different than Batman and philosophy. So the question behind the question is, what is true? And the assumption is that you know what's true already and what's not true. You become the self-appointed filter through which we sift everything we read in Scripture. You make yourself, we make ourselves the final authority. Now, Scripture is offensive because it spits in the face of those who do make themselves the final authority. In Psalm 119, it says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Not my precepts, not my parents' precepts. You have commanded your, God, precepts to be kept diligently. So how can I say that we put ourselves in the final authority? Well, never in history has, of civilization has there been such a paradox as there is now in the West and especially here in America. We want two things. We want independence and we want democracy. We want to decide what is best for ourselves, but we kind of want to provide it for us. We want independence because we believe that what we believe and our decisions shouldn't be impacted by anyone else, despite who our beliefs and our decisions impact. But we want democracy. We're democratic in a sense because if something good happens to you, it should happen to me. We mask it in a kind of a self-righteous way by saying, if it happens to you, it should happen to everyone. Did you bring enough gum for everyone? We're taught that in first grade, right? If it happens to you, it should happen to me. So we are jealous of the person that gets something and praises God for it like they should, like they're right to do. But then we're mad at God because he didn't give me one either. That's how I know we have placed ourselves firmly in the judge's seat. We know what's true. We know what's best because we do it all the time. We decide what's true. And no one else, especially God, gets to weigh in. We like to pretend that we know what is truth on our own. 
Now, that's not to say there isn't a spiritual sense to the Bible, that the Bible speaks to us as individuals. From the earliest Christian teachers of the Bible, they looked for a spiritual sense to whatever they read, but they never did so because they thought it was littered with errors. Early Christian teachers of Scripture believed the, that there were at least three, sometimes four, senses to whatever they were reading. You had the literal sense, like this happened, this took place in time and space, this happened. Then you did have this spiritual or ethical sense where it does guide how you believe, act, and think. But there was also a sense where it taught something about Christ. It was Christocentric. The whole Bible points to Christ. So you're free to find spiritual meaning in most biblical texts. Visit just about any bookstore and you'll find no shortage of books devoted to just that. Most often they're found in like a devotional section. But you never do it. You never look for a spiritual sense so that you're free to make it into good advice and then not follow it. So the Bible is not just a spiritual text. It has immense eternal spiritual truths, but that doesn't make it where you don't get to follow it. Second question is this. Isn't the Bible just another sacred book, maybe like the Quran? Isn't the Bible just a regular old sacred book? Now, this is a very Western, first world kind of idea. You don't really get this question much in other parts of the world that's not civilized like the West. The assumption behind this question is that all these books are equal. Therefore, you are obligated in a democratic society to respect all these books in the same way. Christianity has the Bible, Islam has the Quran, Hinduism has the Vedas and other uh, holy scriptures, Buddhism has a very loose definition of what constitutes a holy scripture. What this question forces us to do, though, is to make our faith a private matter. You can choose to believe any of these books as long as it's more of a personal choice. It's a matter of preference. The question behind the question is, is asking, what makes the Bible special? What makes the Bible stand out? Now, that's a fair question. And Scripture even addresses that very issue. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is addressing a large group of believers. In chapter 10, he's talking about how through Jesus, salvation is offered to all people and every nation. In doing so, he even quotes some Old Testament passages to uh, bulk up his argument. And he mostly quotes in the book of Isaiah. One of his quotes is a question, and he asks, Lord, who has believed our message? Lord, who has believed our message? He's saying that the gospel message will go out to all the world. He goes on, and from Isaiah's question, Paul just comes to the conclusion that this, Paul comes from, or faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the words of Christ. Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the words of Christ. So what makes the Bible stand out? Only these texts have the words of Christ. Nowhere else does any text claim to have the words of Christ. It's a very simple idea, but it's one that's often overlooked and kind of taken for granted. It's often assumed that all religions point to the same God, so all the books are equal, and... Some religions even teach that explicitly. You know, uh, there are churches that teach that all go to heaven despite what you actually put your faith in, right? It's not so much that you have a list of beliefs that are all correct, it's what you put your faith in. And some believe that doesn't actually matter. So what makes the Bible stand out? Only the Bible really contains the words of Christ. The biblical authors, every single one of them, 
was adamant that the entire Bible contained signposts pointing to Christ. Basically, the idea is that Christ did not just show up in the New Testament. Christ was at the beginning, at the creation of the world, and he'll bring down the kingdom onto this world when he comes back. Christ was there at creation, he'll be there at the end. He did, he did not just show up when the New Testament began. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul again places Christ in places that we may not have noticed him at a surface reading level back in the Old Testament. In chapter 10, he says that the Israelites drank from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. If you read the text he's quoting, you may not read Jesus in there, but Paul reassures us that Christ is found in every word of every passage in the Bible. So how does the Bible stand out? Only the Bible contains the words of Christ, and only the words of Christ can lead to eternal life. Our last question is this, and this is more of the dismissive kind of negative connotation, more hateful towards our, our faith kind of question is this. Doesn't the Bible teach a lot of things that we wouldn't stand for today and therefore is barbaric? Doesn't the Bible teach a lot of things that we don't stand for today so it's barbaric? This is how we get away with being very dismissive about the Bible completely. Many read the Old Testament especially and see, you had patriarchs uh, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, having multiple wives. They had many slaves. They played favorites with their children. So their conclusion is that the Bible condones such behavior. Now, this is a very superficial reading that was on par with believing that Mark Twain was a terrible racist because he wrote Huckleberry Finn. With an eye on the context, you know that isn't the case, that that's a foolish thought. So when you read about Solomon having concubines, women that you just got to sleep with, had concubines, when God gave King David multiple wives, when Abraham had so many slaves, you also read about the terrible wrath they endured for their behavior. The Bible constantly upsets cultural defaults, and the cultural default of the day was to have many wives, to have many slaves, and to favor one of your children, to favor the oldest child. So God manifesting his power through the scriptures upsets man's wisdom. To read those stories and come to the conclusion that the Bible is an outdated manual for barbarism is to come to the text with an agenda and not let the Bible speak for itself. In a word, it's just lazy. It's true there have been people that have always used the Bible for their own glory and not God's. People have used texts out of their context to condone race-based slavery. But when people point that out to show the fact that the Bible a Bible shouldn't be applied to our enlightened postmodern lives. They ignored the other facts that a vast majority of people have never used the Bible to condone such behavior. And in fact, in our own history, before the Civil War, there were bishops and pastors in Britain who were writing American bishops and pastors in support of their efforts to abolish such slavery. One of the things that often hangs us up is the notion that God commanded and condoned, ordained, the genocide of thousands of people at various points in the Old Testament. Now that may have happened, but a lot of this stems from cherry-picking a few verses here and there to make your point. Even early on in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, we're told that God actually wanted the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites from the Promised Land. Now, driving out may actually assume a lot of survivors. It's also well accepted that many scholars of the ancient Near East today the Canaanites practiced things that even the most liberal societies would never, ever condone. Things like infant sacrifice, 
bestiality, incest, robbing someone of their humanity by forcing ritual prostitution. One of the traits that stems from God's love and justice, justice is that he limits evil. He doesn't just allow evil to run rampant forever. Also, God waited 400 years before he commanded Jericho be destroyed. He waited 400 years. His wrath is not fast. It's not, slow, it's not quick to get here. He's, he's, uh, he's wrathful, but he's also very patient with us. God loves patience. And sometimes language will trip us up, and we're told that God wanted Israel to utterly destroy and leave nothing alive when they went into certain towns. One of the things, the very hard truths that we have to make peace with as, as Christians, as believers, as those that have faith in Christ, is that God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us a day. God doesn't owe us anything but death yesterday. All God owes us is the payment for our sin. That's all God owes us. But in his infinite love and mercy, that, that, that isn't what he gives us. He gives us eternal life by us giving ourselves to him. So God doesn't owe us anything. So when we, we read about these terrible cultures that got wiped out, it is offensive to a modern mind. It is. We have to admit that. We also have to admit that God doesn't owe you or me anything, even one more day. You don't need to be a scholar to find all of this out. All of this is right there in the biblical text. Of course, there are parts of the Bible that do warrant a good level of interpretation. But a basic tenet of Bible study is this. It was meant to be understood. It was written down to be understood. All too often, we come to the Bible without acknowledging our cultural bias. We already know in our mind that God is a monster who just kills thousands of people. And then we read the text and see what it actually has to say. Then you and I are left to make the Bible continue to be subject to our bias, or we're left to just swallow our pride and have the text speak for itself. Christ even points out the importance of knowing what the Bible says and how to apply it. There's this scene in the Gospel of Matthew where a group of Jewish religious leaders, the elite, the Sadducees in this case, are confronting Jesus about one of his particular teachings. As a whole, the Sadducees did not believe in the physical resurrection at the end of time. It was even kind of the litmus test to be a Sadducee. So they proposed to Christ this scenario. A man dies, so his brother marries his wife. This was a common practice. It was even Mosaic law. When, when, a, when one man dies, his brother marries the wife to take care of her. But they make this into some kind of nonsensical scenario. They turn it into nonsense by not just having two men there, but now there are seven. So one brother dies, so the other brother marries her. He dies, the next brother marries her, then he dies, and that happens seven times. So what are they doing? They're essentially just mocking Christ and mocking the idea of resurrection. So they ask him, who will, be, who will she be married to after their resurrection? I mean, there were seven of them. This shows how silly your idea actually is, right? We have an example here of how important the right use of Scripture is right from the mouth of Jesus. Je Jesus very quickly does address their error in interpretation. But the meat of what he says has to do with their reading and application of Scripture. He says there are two things you don't know. You don't know the scriptures, for one. They kind of quoted Deuteronomy 28 or 25. They kind of quoted Genesis 38. They kind of did those things. 
But they also don't know the power of God. They don't know their Bible, and they don't know the power of God. So yes, he does correct their interpretation, but he begins by addressing their perspective on Scripture. So we can quite easily take away from this that Scripture and the power of God are very closely related. When we try to spiritualize the Bible away, when we say it's like all other sacred books, they're no different, when we call it barbaric, out of his infinite love and mercy, Jesus corrects us. If Jesus was truly the Son of God, if we believe he was who he believed he was and who the apostles died preaching about, then we can trust his perspective on Scripture. The way Jesus used Scripture was very telling of his belief about it. He had it memorized for one. We're told in the Gospel of Luke that at age 12, Jesus went head-to-head with the highly educated, elite Jewish teachers of the temple. When Jesus was older and was tempted in the desert by Satan, what was his weapon that he used to combat Satan's lies? Scripture. And then you have the no shortage of occasions where he continued to put the religious elite, the show-offs, in their place by correcting their misuse and abuse of Scripture. The legalism and the self-righteousness that Jesus so hated about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the ones who were just self-righteous was born from their misuse and their abuse of Scripture. Jesus also references every one of the books of Moses at least once and most of the prophets. When we read the four Gospels, Jesus quotes the Old Testament no less than 60 times, and then he refers to or alludes to the Old Testament at least double that. So Jesus had much more than just a simple command of the Bible. What's interesting is that even Jesus reads much of the Old Testament like it's pointing to him. He understands himself as the focus upon which every letter, word, and paragraph of the Old Testament and the whole Bible points. So there are a thousand different questions people have about the Bible. And these three are a small selection. And if the Bible can't stand up to scrutiny, then is it worth putting any kind of faith in? But we find over and over again that the Bible stands up to every question posed to it. At the end of the day, the inescapable truth is that the, the answer the Bible gives about why it exists is a person. The Bible exists solely to point you to Christ. In this way, like Paul tells Timothy, we're made complete. When we douse our hearts and our minds in Scripture, we are made complete. By knowing Christ, we're saved. By knowing Scripture, we're made complete. There is room to question it. There's even room to doubt it. But there's no room to deny Scripture. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can gather here together as believers and welcome those who who don't yet know you, that they might dig into your word. And the Scripture says to test it yourself, to dig into the Scriptures and really find out, is Jesus who he said he was? We find over and over again that the answer is yes. Over and over again, the Bible shows us that Christ is who we said he was. So help us all to uh, have our belief, but help us in our unbelief. We ask that you bless us as we leave this place. And if there are any here who don't yet know you as their Savior, that they might not leave today without knowing you that way. And we pray. Amen.